Hello, and I'd like to welcome our virtual audience to the Fearless Conversations event, a collaboration between the advertiser and Flinders University. It's about being brave in our thinking about how we can drive South Australia forward in the future and challenge ourselves to position this great state for success in the future. There have been a series of fascinating Fearless discussion panels on topics such as defence, medical innovations, high-tech innovation, infrastructure, education, wine, tourism and more. For each, a group of thought-provoking leaders have explored the opportunities and challenge in relation to each topic. Today, we explore the vital health and care industries and how they will influence South Australia now and into the future. Feel free to join the conversation through Twitter using the hashtag FearlessConversations or in the comments sections on advertiser.com.au. I'm Brad Crouch, journalist with The Advertiser, and I'll be facilitating today's discussion and encouraging our guests to be frank and fearless. Before I introduce today's panellists, I would like to acknowledge that we are meeting on the traditional country of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to elders past and present. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. And we also expend that respect to other Aboriginal language groups and other First Nations. So today we are joined by a great panel. And from my left, Professor Julie Ratcliffe, Health Economics and Matthew Flinders Fellow, College of Nursing and Health Sciences, Flinders University. Then we have Professor Alison Kitson, Vice President and Executive Dean, College of Nursing and Health Sciences at Flinders University. Then we have Lynn Dean, the Chief Executive of Wellbeing SA. And we also have Jane Musserhead, Chief Executive of COTA SA, an organisation promoting the rights, needs and aspirations of older South Australians. So there's been one big health story the past 18, 19 months, the pandemic. Um, we've also had record ambulance ramping, hospital bed block, um, and it all seems to be uh, creating issues when COVID does arrive. So Alison, can I start with you? Are we, are we ready for the opening of borders and the likely uh, arrival of COVID? So Brad, all I can say is that you will never be out of a job given all the things that are happening in health, in care and our pandemic. But look, first, point I want to make is South Australia has done a wonderful job in protecting uh, its citizens are, uh, in the pandemic. I mm -hmm. think Lynn and Jen and Julie and colleagues listening will all know that uh, that doesn't happen by accident. Yep. So so the, the keeping distance, making sure these simple um, messages about hand hygiene, uh, making sure that if you're not feeling well, you stay at home, really, really important. As for the next stage we're getting into, most important thing, get vaccinated. Just do the, the right thing for your community, for your family, for yourself, go and get vaccinated. We know across the world that people who are vaccinated, even if they get COVID, uh, reduce symptoms, much more likelihood to get better and not have any symptoms. So we can avoid uh, an overcrowding in the hospital by yep. just doing the common things that we've been reminded to do for this last year and a half. Isn't that right, Lynn? Yes, agree. Um, they're really all very important messages. And uh, I think um, when we think about where South Australia is compared to where other states have when they had uh, COVID enter into their states, you know, they are at much lower vaccination rates. South Australia is really doing quite well with its vaccination rates, but there's more that we can be doing, um, particularly over the next four weeks before we actually open those borders. 
And that all adds up to easing the strain on the hospital system by people not getting as yeah. sick even yeah. if they catch it. And going back to your point about ramping and bed blocking, well, <clears throat> I suppose as a nurse, my first comment is that uh, it's really disrespectful uh, to the people who are in those ambulances and are in those beds where professional staff uh, describe them as bed blockers. These are individuals who, for no fault of their own, <clears throat> have found themselves <clears throat> pardon me, in, a, in an acute situation. They trust the health service, they trust the politicians, they trust the professionals. So let's stop blaming them for something that is a whole system problem. And also let's uh, get a bit of fearlessness about acknowledging that our systems are not fit for purpose. The systems were built for individual acute episodes. You go in, you get sorted, you go out and you can look after yourself. We know demographically that most people going into hospital are over 65, have got multiple chronic illnesses and an acute episode brings them in very sick, very vulnerable, very dependent. So it really absolutely annoys me to hear uh, people talking about bed blockers and mm. about ramping. We're the, we're the people that our communities have entrusted us as professionals to sort these problems out. So I would be keen for us to have a few more fearless conversations around this. Yep. And, and I would agree with that. The, the really important part in getting ready for uh, the opening of our borders beyond COVID, uh, of course, will be to make sure that we look after the rest of our health and that our health system is a health system, not a COVID system. Um, but but I, I think it's really important that we understand that people who are being referred to as bed blockers are simply people looking for a service and some support for legitimate reasons. And, uh, and the way to shift that is to build the system outside the hospital so that it prevents people going in unnecessarily and enables people to leave um, when it's time to leave. Um, one of the things that we, we, we must make sure that everybody has access, of course, to an acute system when they need it, but we need to do more to build the system before and the system afterwards. Part of the pressure on the health system has been mental health, um, which is obviously a, a broad issue. Um, we've, there's been talk about needing more mental health beds, but can I, can I ask you, is early invention, intervention part of the key to this rather than letting it get to that acute stage? Julie, do you want to have a go at that? Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I agree that um, early intervention is really important. And I think it sort of links into the previous comments about, you know, we need to focus more on a whole of system approach, not just on our hospitals and our hospital systems. So um, to be able to intervene early in the community, so in primary care settings, uh, to for, 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 for all individuals to be able to access the mental health care and support that they need, you know, in the community uh, before um, their mental health becomes a, a, a problem so severe that they do need to access the, the hospital system. I think that's really important. So we do need to take, you know, a broader system-wide approach um, in the community as well as well as the hospital setting yep. to 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 um, to these concerns. And certainly, um, you know, our mental health the mental health of everyone over the past 18 months has been um, really, uh, you know, re really challenged, I, I, I think. Um, and so um, it, it is a concern, but I think we need more of a, a, a system level approach yep. to, to, to solving these, these problems. Jane, you mentioned I, earlier I, about um, 
climate change being an issue for mental health of people in the regions? Do, can I elaborate so, on that? So we're, one of the things that older people are telling us, and indeed some of the evidence that's, uh, that's emerging, is that there is a very strong relationship between climate change and both physical and mental health, and, and particularly um, the effects of climate change, um, like bushfires and droughts, uh, um, which disproportionately affect both vulnerable populations, but also our regional populations. And I, I, I think given the focus of the last week in terms of the international stage, it's just worthwhile remembering that it is a, it, it's a topic that we all need to work at um, that unifies generations in lots of ways, because you know, I think this is, this is something that across generations give a priority, but is a part of the health picture and is a part of the upstream health picture. Yep. I think in addition to that, I think there are great points in the context of considering the mental health system as being broader than a hospital per se. I actually think that one of the things that we um, often talk about mental health, but really what we're talking about is psychological distress. Um, yep. So when you think about bushfires and um, those responses to COVID, we run a public um, population health survey. We initiated that survey to be much more uh, regular during the initiation of COVID. We saw through that process that people were um, not necessarily needing more access to mental health services, but what they did talk about was that they had a, a feeling of general, uh, I suppose, poor well-being and um, also um, increased psychological distress. And I think in the context of an early intervention um, uh, approach, we're not necessarily talking about building more mental health services, but we're actually looking at what are the types of structures that need to be in communities to support communities so that it helps them uh, if they're feeling distressed, you know, they've got a group of people around them, some um, safe haven areas, those sorts of things are really important to communities in the context of addressing that uh, psychological distress. And we know that if we're not actually focusing on psychological distress early enough, then that actually has repeat distress. Um, you know, uh, those sorts of things lead to more mental health issues. Yep. So it's really that element of that early intervention at that point, which is not a health service responsibility. It is absolutely around the community. Um, it's about kids going to school. How do we support them in addressing distress, those elements? So I'm actually quite keen to see us start to really talk about it in not a mental health context, but a psychological yeah. distress. Can I just uh, really support that view? Because what we have to be very careful of is medicalizing, mm. you know, putting a medical condition onto things that are just life stuff. You know, yeah. you have to yeah. get on with life. You need yeah. to build that resilience. You need to know how to care for yourself. You need to know how to care for other people. And indeed, that's the reason we set up the Caring Futures Institute to sort of try and articulate or identify the sort of things that you just know how to do. For example, Lynn, you were telling me mm. that when you were in the US, uh, mm. you you sort of looked after young parents and taught them how to look after their kids so they didn't have to go into hospital. Mm. They were able to uh, provide the yeah. care. Uh, supervised, supported. Now, to me, that's the sort of way we should be moving. Yeah, absolutely. Making sure that only the people who really, really need to get into our very expensive acute hospitals get there and all the rest of us, because you know what? Hospitals are quite harmful places to be in. 
you know, you could end up not getting food, you could end up not being able to go to walk to the toilet, you could end up a bit confused, and that's on a good day. Mm. So, you know, these are the things that we really have to think about, think differently about. So it sounds very much a multi-agency approach is needed, everything from local councils through to, yeah. you know, a lot falls back on teachers all the time, but, um, but it's much more than just yeah. the health system as such. Mm. Yeah. And if I, I, I would also suggest it's also, it means paying attention to needs like housing. Mm -hmm. So and we know that right now there are 10,000 older South Australians who are in housing stress. Um, meeting the needs of, of low income people and their need for housing is a part of preventing that cycle of psychological distress and mental health. Yeah, and of course, those people in low housing without the right care networks or support, the right uh, uh, sort of health or care literacy, guess what they will be called when they go into a health system? A bed blocker, mm. because mm. they're complex, mm. because uh, the infrastructure and support around them is not there. So in order to solve one part of a complex system, you have to actually yes. understand yeah. all the other influencing bits. And, you know, like we can put men on the moon and women, mm -hmm. I presume as mm -hmm. well. Uh, we can go to Mars. Uh, we can have uh, people, very billionaires going on space shuttles. Why can't we sort out some of these deeply complex problems on this planet? And that would ease the economic pressure on the health system. I think the health budget hit 7.4 billion in the last state budget. And I've had ministers say to me in the past that if we don't put a lid on it, it'll consume the entire budget one day. So would that, well, the well, approach you've been mentioning, would that ease that spending issue? This um, is the health economist yes, speaking. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's certainly, it certainly would be, be very helpful to easing that, that spending issue. So, um, you know, being able to, um, be able to support people better in the community um, beyond the health system. We've yep. talked about uh, issues that are that are well beyond the health system that are in all areas of, 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 of public sector spending. Um, so we should definitely be be thinking more about that about that that beyond the the health system itself. But also as a health economist, um, one one of my um, if you like the the sort of bread and butter research that I do as a health economist every day is working quite closely with clinicians. Um, focusing on the cost effectiveness of new um, innovations in healthcare, yep. new pharmaceuticals, etc. We know there's a lot of te technological change happening in, in the world and a lot of new technology and wonderful new technology being introduced into our health system. Um, but we also have to be very mindful of how we uh, spend our um, limited funding available for the health system. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fantastic for clinicians to have, you know, the greatest new piece of technology and who doesn't want yeah. to have that? Uh, yes, you yeah. know, we all want that in our own homes in, in the health system. But we also have to make sure that when we introduce those new technologies that they're cost effective so you know we're not spending a lot of money on new technologies for example that might only result in a very small increase mm -hmm. if any increase at all in the health and quality of life mm -hmm. of the population that that technology has been designed to serve yep. so we do need to focus on evidence as well it's very important to have really good evidence mm -hmm. about the uh, technologies the new pharmaceuticals etc that we introduce that they are actually um, benefiting it's not just about the costs; it's about mm -hmm. the benefits side of the equation 
Um, so are they benefiting uh, the, the, the people that they've been designed to serve? Uh, and the way that we find that out is by asking the people themselves. Um, so we need to have um, much more of a focus on measuring um, health and quality of life from the perspective of the patients who receive these new technologies, these new interventions to really make sure that they're um, you know, they are benefiting the population in terms of improving their health and quality of life, ultimately. I guess balanced against that, though, you'd have the vested interests of the pharmaceutical companies, the technology companies wanting to that's that's where the, that's exactly right, Brian. That's why we need more health economists in Australia, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because that you know we can we can do that work. We can work closely with the clinicians with the health system to do that work. Yep. You know, a lot of clinicians in the health system are actually, you know, I have many conversations with clinicians who are concerned about the costs of, you know, new technologies, you know, oh, there's this great new piece of equipment, but it's quite costly. Is it actually going to deliver the benefits to my patients? So there are a lot of, lot of you know, clinicians who are aware of that sort of <coughs> cost-benefit equation and yeah. the need to have more of that evidence um, in the health system but as we move forward to I, really help to ease the pressure on the health. Can I just add, though, um, that it isn't just uh, new shiny technologies that need to be embedded in the system. It, it's some of the very ordinary things like the hand washing. And again, there's, there's a, a great bit of evidence that has come out of uh, multiple studies in the US that, that shows that people who, who get pneumonia um, as a result of um, uh, poor, not having their teeth washed when they've been in hospital. Yeah that actually causes more complications and unnecessary harm than a lot of other uh, hospital acquired infections. So we've got a scenario where if you're very ill, if you're in an acute hospital ward, and if you uh, aren't able to wash your own teeth and nobody washes your teeth, you're more at risk at getting pneumonia. Okay, mm. just right. think of the uh, amount of hospital cost and waste and uh, length of stay that will influence. Yep. Now, how come uh, we quite routinely fill people with antibiotics before they have surgery? But if they're having surgery, you're not required to make sure that your teeth are properly washed and mm. that your mouth is clean before you have surgery. So as a nurse, I'm sort of thinking, how come these basic, these fundamental aspects of care are sort of evaporating out of our very, and, very sophisticated systems? And indeed, we, we advocate very strongly for a much better focus on oral health care. We think it's, uh, a as the gateway to the body, the yeah. mouth is a very important part of our bodies. It is not covered um, by universal health, um, so by Medicare. Um, and and we need to get to the point where we under where we where it is routinely available. Good oral health care is routinely available for all people. It is one of the areas that we can work on if we want to prevent hospital admissions. Yeah, I think just to add to the conversation that Julie was talking about, that sort of um, I suppose investment and cost benefit uh, for um, technology. I think. The reality is that we're living in a very technological um, society. So um, the digital platforms, you know, the apps, the um, people, consumers these days, they want to be able to um, get their access to healthcare now. They don't necessarily want it to be in the hospital. Um, I had a colleague recently arrive in Adelaide. She needed to see a GP. She's not from Adelaide. 
She rang um, uh, through an electronic medium. She had a conversation with a GP. The script was down at the pharmacy half an hour later and she had a medication. <coughs> so this concept of um, technology being purely about a hospital system, I actually think when we talk about cost benefit analysis, it's also about driving technology being built to build um, better models of care that are not necessarily surrounded by a hospital. So this idea that all roads lead to a hospital or all roads lead to an emergency department, we actually need to shift the dial in the community to say, community are actually starting to drive this um, expectation of services to them. And people in residential aged care don't want to leave residential aged care. Why don't we be bringing the technology to those services rather than always being a cost benefit analysis for a hospital rather than services yeah. across the board. And indeed, one of the, the points the Royal Commission made very strongly is that the interface between aged care and health doesn't work very well. And so the, the opportunity to receive uh, really good health care while living in, for example, a residential aged care facility is really limited and we've got to fix that. That was one of the challenges issued uh, by the Royal Commission. Okay. Um, can I just turn to the uh, health workforce? Um, there was a recent union survey showing about 56% of nurses intend to leave in the next five years. Um, it, I know we're getting a, um, a larger intake of nurse graduates this year, but are, are we looking down the track at a, a real issue of having enough people in the medical workforce or where are we headed? Uh, well, um, I think the pandemic has shown that uh, if, if I focus on the nursing workforce, but I know medicine and allied health are, are facing similar challenges, people being burnt out, um, just uh, the relentless uh, sort of expectation. We know that in Denmark, in the Netherlands and Sweden, we've actually had nurses go on strike in New Zealand. They've been going on strike. And that's very much uh, a sort of uh, an articulation, uh, a call for people to actually acknowledge and value and respect the work that these frontline workers do. And, and that's very much related to um, having, you know, nursing and, and most health activity is based on the relationship that you can establish with another person whether that's 30 seconds or two hours or 10 days or two years, you have to have that ability to connect. Now, uh, certainly what I've observed in nursing over this last 20 years or so is that uh, the, the, the sort of focus on the task and time, the checklist, making sure that things are done, that, that almost becomes the thing that everybody's focusing on and measuring rather than actually uh, talking about the importance of the therapeutic relationship, the importance of being able to focus on the patient, the person and the, and the, the whole network of, of family around them. And, and, and it's that frustration, wanting to do a good job, not being able to do it, that is leading many nurses to say, you know what, I've had enough. I'm just so frustrated and I'm leaving. So the, we'll have this hemorrhaging of, of newly qualified graduates, of people who've been in five years, decide it's easier to be a Qantas air hostess rather than be on the front line. If we, if we don't actually address the issue of what gives people um, a, a good positive experience in the workplace, yep. we know what that is. Research knows what it is. Uh, we're still uh, challenged to get it to work. 
I couldn't agree more. Is it, the workforce is a, I, I think that is one of the frontiers that we absolutely need to uh, to challenge at the moment. And I would go beyond the, the health workforce to the, the care workforce and beyond the metropolitan area to our regions. We are we are going to be in real trouble standing up a workforce that is that delivers the quality um, and adequacy of service across South Australia in years to come. Um, and and we don't seem to have good solutions at the moment. I, importantly, part of that is uh, making sure that those jobs have meaning. I, I, I think one of the experiences of COVID is that rather than bring new people in, we've we've moved a workforce around too much. And so, you know, people have been able to, you know, move from, I mean, one of the problems in aged care in the regions is that people have moved out of aged care and into, uh, for example, um, supporting COVID very importantly, but it does leave the aged care system very vulnerable. And uh, these are great careers. These are careers that uh, in the past people have loved and cherished. Yep. Um, I think part of this is making sure that we are grateful and are thankful that we pay properly for the jobs that are there to be done. Um, that we uh, that we ensure these are in aged care, ninety percent women. That we make sure that there are careers um, that can be built as part of it, um, and that we think about the workforce as as being across the whole of South Australia and not just uh, the metropolitan workforce yeah. challenge is big enough, but yeah. th but it is a, a South Australian workforce it's, challenge. It's almost as if care is a dirty word. You know, it's not valued. Uh, anyone can do it and it's it's more important to be able to play around with technology and uh, medical charts rather than actually make sure that somebody is comfortable, has a clean mouth, is able to eat their food and is actually able to read the paper because you put their glasses on and they can talk because you've got their hearing aids sorted. You know, like that's the sort of care you would want, Brad. Yep. Yep. Would you think that that's easy to do or complex. I think it'd be pretty hard. Pretty hard, yes. So there you go. So you need to be a great advocate for our whole caring profession and stop people demoralising us and devaluing what we do. Fair point. Is, is pay an issue there, particularly in I think, aged care? I think pay, pay is an issue, particularly in aged care. We know that we don't have enough nurses in aged care and the yep. nurses that we do have are paid on average around 20% less than nurses in the health system. Okay. Um, so, you know, we should be paying our nurses in aged care equivalent to nurses in the health system. That would go a long way, I think, to attracting, you know, um, trained skilled and uh, skilled trained nurses into 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 aged care uh, you know a lot of a lot of nurses will go into the health system because you know why would i go into aged care when i'm not going to be enumerated in in yeah. the same way as in the health system so i think that that's that's really important and you know the greatest gift that any of us in society have that we can give to to fellow members of society is our time mm. and increasingly our time um, is being eroded and the time to be able to spend caring in the ways that we would all you know ideally want to I'm thinking of myself even as a parent here you know um, you know we live in a very an increasingly rapid society and digitalization and, and everything that goes with it in a way has speeded things up and made things a lot harder, I think, for a lot of people, actually, rather yep. than easier, which is what it was designed to do. Um, so the greatest gift you can give somebody is your time. And as a, as a, in a caring profession, um, the frustration for, for, for staff who feel that they just don't have the time available to be able to care in the ways that they want. So we do need to, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult 
issue. We do need to think about ways to increase the workforce and to have, you know, more people on the ground to be able to provide the caring so that, that, that people feel that they have the time. They also need to be valued. And we know that a large part of that value is, is in remuneration and having the skills and training um, that, yep. that, 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 that the workforce need to be able to, to provide that high quality care. And indeed, 30% of the aged care workforce is, uh, were born overseas. So it, it, this also means um, paying attention to that section of the workforce, which of course has been in shorter supply in, in recent times, but um, and making sure that they too are valued, that they too have careers, that they too, as they move perhaps to our regions um, to, to take up work, that they too are welcomed. So, um, you know, we are relying on an overseas trained and a, and a older female workforce basically yep. in, in aged care. And uh, those are two groups that I, I think we haven't traditionally valued well. Um, and it's time to change. I think in addition to that, the, the whilst I agree, um, you know, ensuring that um, aged care and the health industry has really um, high quality staff who have um, are remunerated for their expertise. I think that the, the discussion around who delivers care and what does that workforce look like, we talk a lot about um, uh, interdisciplinary teamwork yet we still continue to silo. And I, I do sort of have this statement that I feel like I've worked in health for nearly all of my life. And we still do 10 o'clock OBS the way we've always done 10 o'clock OBS. And in a way that idea of saying, um, my time of spending with uh, a, a, um, a patient is really valuable, but do I need to be doing all the tasks that are required that day? And is it my interaction with that client that actually makes a difference to them rather than how I wash them. And I think that some of those things are really difficult for the profession to really let go of or think about where the priority sits. So we talk about prioritisation, but in actual fact, if anybody's worked with nurses, we're really bad at prioritisation because we think we have to do it all. So I do think there's some real questions around moving forward. We can't continue to operate and deliver care the way we've always done. We're talking about new technologies, but in effect, we still run a hospital or a health system the way we've always run it. And if we're really going to take forward healthcare in an effective way, these are the conversations that the professions need to really take forward. And what I see is we start to be a bit protective rather than saying, actually, we all have a role. We can all contribute, but we don't all need to be the same level, the same classification, the same pay, but how we actually work as a team to deliver care to somebody who's really in need of it. Linda, for keeping people out of hospital, we've now got Wellbeing SA, which you're chief executive of. It's, uh, it's quite an interesting innovation when it was created. Yes. Um, is enough being done in the prevention area? Or what, what more could we really work on? Yeah, I think it, um, in the short answer, we would always say there is a lot more to be done. We are only just heading towards being two years old. So in that context, I think um, the fact that we now have a spotlight agency that is really focused on prevention and early intervention is really important. But as one of my colleagues said to me just the other day, Lynn, this has been a uh, chronic disease has been growing year on year on for the last 40 years. So that idea that we're going to simply turn it around in all of you know two years isn't really realistic. Um, this is a long term plan for not only just South Australia, but you know across Australia and international, the growth in chronic disease and the burden of disease going into the health system has been increasing 
every year. Um, the incidence, I suppose, of obesity, um, people being overweight, leading to those chronic diseases. As I said, that's been a 40-year journey. So the work that we need to do in South Australia, again, is not necessarily just about the health system. This is actually population. This is about community, looking at how communities look at having good, healthy physical activity, uh, food gardens, you know, that sort of going back to almost a little bit of that basics of good quality food, good nutritious food. Um, but I think it's also really important that what often happens in uh, those conversations about prevention and early intervention is almost that you haven't done the right thing as an individual. But in actual fact, we haven't set the systems up to support communities to work in this way, to have access to good, healthy food, good um, environment, good uh, areas where they can be physically active. So the idea of having a good path to get to that park, to be able to actually walk around, enjoy that nature, that green space that we all know is really good for your mental well-being, is those sorts of infrastructures that we need to be also working uh, collectively about. But I, I think um, I, I was reading something uh, recently about uh, a, a woman who set up a whole new brand of food, you know, healthy, nutritional, nutritious food for toddlers. And that was, and um, Qantas decided that they would buy these. And that was because, you know, the parents of kids who were locked up in long haul flights after about three hours when the kids had gorged on all of this high sugar stuff mm. were just climbing the walls and they were saying, please, you know, give our kids something nutritious. Now, you know, to me, that's another point of taking a whole systems. Mm. How come uh, manufacturers can still be pumping our kids full of sugar and, and chemicals and we as unsuspecting parents think it's okay? Mm. And I was just reminded of a conversation I had with a colleague recently. Does anybody remember Angel Delight or Instant Whip? No, yes, these, I do. do you remember? I it? do. Okay, so these were like the 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 sugar, the 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 high volume sugar puddings that I I remember, you know, mm. thinking was a great treat as a kid, but we only got them like on a very special occasion, whereas other people would be having them every, every day. Night. But I remember, you know, having to take my cod liver oil and having porridge because I grew up in a farm. Now, how did my mother know that that was important? Mm. How did the other mothers who were giving their kids angel delight because they liked it, would, would they would have felt really, really upset if they knew that they were pumping their kids with things that were gonna give them chronic um, renal disease when they reached the mid forties. So this is a mega, mega education program we have to go on. And, you know, it's guys like you, Brad, we have to, we have to recruit you to help us to change the attitudes to healthy living, healthy food and looking after ourselves a bit better. And it's very as, sexy, as, you know. As a systemic, as a system, rather than just, you know, yeah. as I said, uh, not saying to people, you haven't eaten correctly. Uh, it's more in the context. Yeah. What, are, what are the right infrastructures that need to be in place? What are the policy levers um, that Alison's just talking about that need to be in place? It's yep. those elements and knowing that this is a long haul, you know, we are talking about changing, uh, I suppose, a way that people have been for the last 40 years to now start to say you need to shift your dial, but your, the infrastructure, the supporting environment, the commercial determinants, all those things actually need to be part of that journey yeah. rather than just an individual. And if we can, I'm part of the Maggie Beer Foundation. Maggie Beer's put her name behind uh, the importance of, of 
good food and enjoyable food and yep. the context of food way more. Mm. She describes it as an appetite for life um, as we age. So this is not just a challenge for children. This is also um, for people who are increasingly living alone, can't be bothered with food and so slip into really poor um, poor habits. Um, but food, of course, has also the opportunity to provide socialisation uh, experiences. But we need to adjust ourselves to the fact that we are more likely to live alone. Um, and, uh, and, and therefore, we've got to set up, you know, different ways, I suppose, of, of tackling the way we eat. Yep. Um, and, and making sure that we don't lose the the context food comes in a context and i think you know just shoving nutrients down your neck is not eating well there are some opportunities with food i think to create um socialization and engagement yeah. and purpose and yeah. and other things which are, are rich and worth getting and bringing communities together i think um what i think we've all seen through covid that that loss of social connection actually leads to quite significant mental distress bringing communities together in an appropriate way around good healthy food yeah. um, and also physical activity because we know that a little bit of physical activity actually has a big impact on your health. And, and you sort of alluded to it, you, you don't want to put people on a guilt trip and make them mm. feel bad about themselves and then they turn yeah. off. Yes, correct. But again, this is one of the interesting things about uh, modern medicine. If you think of uh, self-management uh, and self-care regimes around chronic disease management, it, it traditionally has been very much focused on the individual, but now what we're realizing is that it's the individual, it's the family, it's mm. the community, it's the context. So you, you, you no longer make the person feel bad that, they're, that they can't do it because, you know, th there's a whole pile of things that they have to consider. And colleague Beck Golly, who's doing work on uh, understanding um, how to reduce childhood obesity, uh, Beck and her team have found that it's the whole family unit that needs to be involved in order to change the patterns yes. in the lifestyle. Now, I would say that that's pretty common for most of our chronic disease issues. And going back to Lynn's point about how we encourage professionals mm. to change their dial. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you, you enable them to work to this, their scope of practice, which means when you're trained as uh, uh, an advanced practitioner or someone who, who has a, a very well-developed understanding of diabetes management, you let that person run the clinics, do the telehealth, and, and actually, you know, provide holistic care rather than say, no, I'm sorry, you can't because you're not covered with mm. Medicare, Medicare, you don't get payments. We're going to have to think very differently if we're going to really confidently tackle this whole tsunami of challenges that we've got. Yep. And I, I do want to weigh in on the physical activity. I think that is, you know, we, we are learning that, you know, if there's a single thing you can do at the moment, you know, that's, that's good for your health. It, in every circumstance for every chronic disease, it is to stay physically active. And we, um, since 2004, with the support of SA Health, have had a Strength for Life program running in gyms and community centres across a hundred places across South Australia um, and tailored to older bodies. It's focused on strength 
and balance and uh, and cardiovascular fitness. And I have to say, people with the right information are sponges for wanting to uh, improve their health and wellbeing. So it, it seems to me that we do have to make sure that we've got the right opportunities around for people, yeah. but also the flow of information, yeah. including in non-digital means, yeah. the flow of information so that people can make good decisions. Um, one of one of the innovations we've seen recently, uh, especially for people with chronic diseases, has been the um, the hospital at home program. Is is that something that's going to boom from here on in? Do you think? Uh, I think it, it well it definitely needs to boom from here on in, and for for a couple of reasons. Um, I, to a degree, I don't believe that we can continue just to continue to build more and more hospital beds. Um, it actually isn't, as Alison said, it really isn't the best place to be, um, and in the context of we actually have the technology and the workforce to be able to work with people in the community. Um, we know even that earlier conversation around mental health, when I talk to um, people who um, are looking for support for mental health, the emergency department is the last place they want to go. Yeah. They actually want the services around them. So that idea of the person being the center of their care and making decisions about the type of care they're wanting and that being an environment that's suitable to them is you know a lot of people say we want to have that in the home as long as it's safe and effective and I've got all the right support. So the one um, unique element of the My Home Hospital um, that we've seen here in South Australia that's a little bit different to other hospital in the home programs is it does use real people, so doctors, nurses, allied health, but it has a digital platform that means that 24/7 you are monitored, contactable, people come into your home. Um, if you need an x-ray, the x-ray machine turns up to your home. If you need pathology, the pathology turns up to your home. If you need pharmacy, it turns up to your home. If you need help with cooking meals, they come to your home. And I think people recover quickly, um, they less disruption to their family. Their yep. family are able to actually provide that support. You know, I, I quite often find that people want to help, but going to a hospital a couple of hours a day is actually more difficult I can spend more time with my family if they're in the environment that they're familiar with and I can still help. Yep, and overwhelmingly, you know, we know that um, the general population, whenever we survey them, we do a lot of these types of surveys, you know, the, the overwhelming preference for, is, to, is to be in your own home and yeah, to be cared for yep. in your own home. Um, and that, that also equates, you know, as we age, um, you know, a, an overwhelming preference to remain uh, cared for and supported in your own home rather than, for example, enter a residential aged care facility. So we do need more support for older people as well, yep. um, more home care packages, which I think was a welcome um, recommendation from the recent Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety. Um, but we need to, to see those, um, let, a reduction in waiting times for older people yep. as well, mm. uh, receiving home care packages. I mean, there is what I call an inextricable link between Australia's aged care system and the healthcare system. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, we do need to, and it's been mentioned uh, in, in, in the conversations previously, we need to start thinking beyond the sort of silos of, you yeah. know, this is the health system, yeah. this is the disability care sector, this is the aged care sector. Mm. Um, it's an integrated system mm. um, and we need to do everything we can to improve um, the quality of, of, uh, of aged care services so that uh, we can reduce the impact um, and the disruption that's caused to older people and their family of transitioning between the aged care system and the hospital system system and having uh, better care and support for older people in their own homes is, is really a, 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 a very important part of that equation. 
It definitely reduces their um, um, disorientation. So when you take yep. somebody from an aged care setting into a hospital where it's noisy, um, they're likely to fall, have poor clinical outcomes. Um, so the My Home Hospital program that I was just talking about actually has managed, um, you know, I can't remember exactly the numbers, but over 200 to 300 people in residential aged care. So they remain in their environment and they receive that hospital level care, but around an environment that they're familiar with. And it, it might be interesting just to note that in uh, 1859, when Florence Nightingale was writing mm. her um, book Notes on Nursing, she predicted by the year 2000, uh, society would no longer need hospitals because people would know how to care the, for themselves effectively mm. in their own homes. Now, that's mm. one thing she got wrong, but the mm. whole idea that a hospital was a temporary stopgap for, for this ability to actually uh, optimise care and healthcare in your own home is very important. And I think we should go back to some of those population health, public health yep. uh, notions, self-care, understanding how you deliver, how you care for yourself, how you care for others in your care network, mm. drawing on the expertise of professionals as and when you need it. Yeah. Somehow we've got that whole equation wrong. We see mm. the professional as at the centre, mm. even though we espouse the idea of person-centred care. Yeah. Uh, and then everything else has to accommodate mm. the, the specialist skill and expertise of the individual. Now, I don't think we purposely set out to make it like that. Um, we might not choose to keep it like that. But now that we've exposed it, this is the fearless thing we have to do. Mm. We have to turn it on its head and actually make sure that people are empowered to look after themselves in the best possible way. And Jane, for, for older Australians, that'd be important to keep them happy in their own home rather than falling sick, going to hospital where they might get even sicker and have the wheels fall off. So, so important if people need to be in hospital, it, access to hospital will always be important. But, but we do know that a whole lot of people go to hospital at the moment for want of better options where they are. So we've been very supportive of initiatives that, that support people to get care where they are. I, I think what's missing at the moment is it, it is not yet a system. It is not, the, the pieces do not connect up in a, in a way that makes it understandable, navigable. Um, so, you know, when when people get sick, they, they, there's certainly not enough upstream to stop people getting sick. Um, and then there's not enough at the point of, of going to hospital um, to prevent that. And then at the other end, we've got to make sure there's a there's a back end to a, you know, a hospital discharge that allows people to get out in a timely fashion and get support. And, and it's that idea that, you know, that this is a system and that health you know, is right across that system that I think we, we continue to struggle to get our heads around. Yep. Um, we've got a, a question from Gareth asking how far the panellists are willing to work at the policy level to implement the interventions that put laws in place to force a change to the food environment, <laughs> which is fairly broad, but does anybody want to tackle that? Well, I'd, I just think uh, we, we have to all work together to make sure that the food that we put into our own bodies and the bodies of the people that we love is, is accurately uh, described. Uh, it's as nutritious as we can get it and that we should not be um, encouraging, you know, uh, large uh, industry groups to make money uh, um, at, our, at our cost. 
it's it's to me it's a total no-brainer so we have to do what we can to change it but you'd rather give people the choice rather than laws well in, no informed choice mm-hmm. like as i said yep. if as a mother if i if i read that something is good and then i read the fine print and i realize that it's not very good that to me as a customer i'm being uh, misled right mm-hmm. I, I think the other part, I, I think we need to also understand food in its context. And uh, so that's what we're learning about older people. We did a terrific session um, with a group of older people in Salisbury this year and asked them about eating. And one of the things that they told us was living alone really sucks when it comes to preparing food. It, you know, for women who've raised families and, um, and you know, cared for others and suddenly to be on your own, it really sucks. And then, you know, preparing food that's that's fun and enjoyable you know is not much fun so how do we how do we make those transitions in life um, that mean that we continue to make healthy choices when you know you know when when life is changing rapidly for us so I think that the the construct of it just being individuals though isn't enough mm-hmm. and uh, in a way, um, you know, using that example, you know, how do we work with communities so that they have all the right infrastructure to be able to do that? So, you know, I may not have enough money to have my own food garden, but maybe the local government, the community um, will be able to have a food garden that I can actually access. So I think some of those things are infrastructure related rather than just me as an individual, because the idea that I have all the money to be able to do that is actually really wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that um, in the construct of we're all a community, no matter where we are, what, what's each of our role in contributing to this issue and what's the bit that I can influence? And it may be that there are um, organisations who could be looking at what they're producing. Could I produce it in a more nutritious way? So, but I don't think the, the stick, you know, you shall do is really the way to do it. But it's the how do we all own this? What's my role in this mess, for want of a better word? And how do we all work together to actually improve that? Indeed, if I can just go on, one of the uh, one of the other things that we learned during COVID was one of the great things that neighbours did for one another uh, was to cook for one another. So one of the things that we learned uh, really in the thick of last year was that neighbours did reach out for one another, and so um, and so the casserole over the fence mm. became a really important part of caring. That, now that that's both about nutrition, but it's also about a gesture of care and connection and belonging and uh, you know I I think if we learn nothing from COVID we should learn um, that it it was neighbourhoods as much as anything that kept us all uh, connected and kept us you know kept us safe. And so important for mental health as we've already discussed. Absolutely. Do do you find with with older Australians who are living alone that because they're just having a sandwich for dinner is, is there a real hidden health problem there of nutrition yes it's so, malnutrition yeah and, and so the maggie beer foundation is focused so far on residential aged care but our our next uh, iteration will be to focus you know much more broadly there is a there is a challenge for us and particularly as i say um older older appetites and older 
uh, needs, you know, our needs, our nutrition needs as we grow older change. Um, and we need to be better informed about what those changes are and how we can, how we can solve them. And I, I, I also think we need better access to good food, more information about good food, and I suspect uh, access on an ongoing basis to company. Um, yeah. So I think you wanted to say. Oh, well, I, yeah, just to, to pick up on Jane's earlier point about, you know, COVID and how important it's been in terms of um, bringing everyone together and the sense of community. And we've done quite a lot of work in our group um, surveying um, members of the general population about how their priorities may have shifted during COVID. And what we found is there's a real move towards what we describe as a, a more of a well-being type economy mm -hmm. rather than a traditional economy where, um, you know, traditionally as a country, we focused on, you know, GDP and growth in goods and services mm -hmm. and growing our economy. Um, full employment has been really the key indicators mm -hmm. of, of success for society. But what we found through COVID is that the priorities of the general public yeah. are now starting mm -hmm. to shift to, um, you know, ele more, more elements which are focused on, on community, mm -hmm. on, um, you know, on reducing happiness. inequities, on yeah, happiness, happiness and well-being. Yeah. Really important indicators and less of a focus on, you know, let's just go out there and try and earn, you know, as much money as yeah. possible. Um, that we really need to think more holistically about and community and well-being. Um, and that's really shone through yeah. uh, in COVID. So that's, for me, is one of the blessings of, of COVID. And I think there can be a blessing from, mm. from what we've all experienced. It has. It is leading to, I think, a shift in 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 in, in the priorities of the general public, more and I towards a fairer uh, and more um, cohesive society. What what we're also picking up is is this mass exodus of people wanting to leave their jobs, you know, yep. across all industries, and I think that really yeah. reflects what Julie has just said about people's, you know, pe our whole societies have been challenged existentially by this pandemic, uh, things we've taken for granted. We can't, we can't see the people we love. Our families are dispersed. We can't get in a plane. We can't go on holiday. We have to be locked up. You know, that is a major set of challenges for us. And I think now is in this disruptive change, now is the time for us to boldly say, okay, if South Australia really wants to uh, get its name out there, uh, let's go for integrated systems, uh, providing holistic care, focusing on our communities, having measures of well-being and happiness mm. that empower people to take control of their own care and own self-care rather than feel that they're in a nanny state and being told what to do. Like, wouldn't that be great? Can, can they be measured though? I think you guys put out a a, a well-being survey, don't you? Yeah, so, yeah. so we have, well, there's a range of things that we do. So we do um, survey the population in regards to some of those indicators, psychological distress I've talked about. But the, the specific elements of well-being, we are actually in the process of developing a well-being indice. So that will be a range of measures against particular um, outcomes that we're seeking to achieve. So I think over the next 12 months, we will start to look at those indices and see um, where the population lie, um, and then try to look at where, where we should focus. Um, it's a really important element. When well-being essay was first established, it's what the community said they wanted. They wanted those well-being measures. Right. Um, are you getting any feedback at the moment? It, it feels to a degree that the worst of the pandemic might be behind us. Is, is there any feedback from these surveys showing a, a level of optimism or confidence? I, I think that the surveys that we um, have been 
doing very regularly um, does still show um, a level of psychological distress and um, general um, concerns about well-being, but they're no worse off than what they were over the last 18 months. So what it does show, and it's one of the things that we started off very early on in COVID, um, and the reason that we were keen to measure it more frequently we so that if we saw changes, we could try to put something in place to support people. And in our early establishment, we did develop a statewide wellbeing strategy that went across all of South Australia. Um, and I think some of those early interventions definitely um, helped communities come together, put some um, strategies around them. Um, but I think as we've evolved, I suppose that sense of hope, that was the thing that people yep. were most worried about early days. I think people can see that we're on a trajectory to a, um, a more clearer path. I think the message does still need to be though, we will not return to the old ways. You know, we actually have to move forward. So some of these social distancing measures, continuing to wash your hands, but make sure that you continue your connections with your community because they're the things that really got us through. Well, on, on that positive note, I'm getting the message to wrap up, but I think that's an optimistic and positive note to finish with. So I'd very much like to thank our panellists today for, for being so insightful and interesting. Uh, some good points have been raised and um, you'll be able to read some more about this in tomorrow's advertiser and also uh, feature in the Sunday Mail. So um, thanks for joining us, our virtual audience. Thanks our panellists and goodbye.